Uh, let me tell you who David Feldman is. Uh, he is a comedian. He's a comedy writer um, with uh, with credits going from the John Stewart Aaron Daily Show to Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. He is a political commentator. He is the host of uh, the David Feldman Show, which airs for two hundred hours a week uh, on everywhere you can find podcasts. And he uh, he co-hosts. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour with the uh, the guy I voted for for president a couple times. So, uh, how are you doing today, David? Uh, pretty good. I'm apologizing because I, for some reason, they're they're blasting music into my app. Uh, can I try calling you back? <laughs> I apologize. I- okay, no problem. Just, okay. just uh, David. Can you hear me now? Uh, all right, let's uh, let's go. We can just try this again and like pretend like we're starting from scratch. Uh, Kusha, how are you doing? <laughs> Good afternoon, but I'm doing very well. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me, and it's a pleasure to speak for the first time to David Feldman. Um, oh, <laughs> yes, hello. It's it's a pleasure. Um, knowing that you're with this Ralph Nader Radio Hour and. Um, Ralph Nader is someone who unfortunately gets maligned so much by so many throughout the United States across the board. I've had discussions with my family about that. Um, you know, whether people are liberals or right wingers, Ralph Nader is hated. And uh, one of my closest friends, you know, since high school, he, his parents are from Lebanon. And I know Ralph Nader is of Lebanese ancestry, if I'm not mistaken. And this mm-hmm. friend of mine, his dad fought in the Lebanese Civil War, in fact, for Kamal Jumblat in the Progressive Socialist Party. He's Druze and Kamal Jumblat was protecting the village and so on. But he eventually became a Reaganist. And so I was having a discussion with him about Ralph Nader once, and it was maybe a few months ago, and he was saying, oh, he's, you know, the General Motors made excellent cars, and why was he complaining? And the thing is, he'll always say, yeah, consumers uh, should be demanding better products and uh, better services from companies and whatnot. But Ralph Nader literally did that. Ralph Nader literally did that for General Motors, uh, for the consumer advocacy, for the, the car being so flawed and whatnot. And he was being spied on, and they tried to take him down. I believe, was it the CEO or one person mentioned under testimony that, yes, they were spying on Ralph Nader. And again, it serves as what Chris Hedges, I believe, is the one who repeats so often the Powell memo from one of the Supreme Court justices who said we have to crush people like Ralph Nader. I don't know if they said Nader by name, but essentially yes, they, allow, did. they, they did. did. OK, yes, yeah. to allow the corporations to just completely take over um, the um, events that unfold uh, and who they unfold for in the United States, how events uh, are manip- I mean, just essentially uh, curating the milieu for big business. And I think one one thing I would love to tie it in is the fact that I know Ralph Nader did a lot of this consumer advocacy that needs to get a lot of credit uh, against General Motors. And I took a class with one of my uh, one of my favorite my favorite professor at UC Berkeley. His name is Alan Ross. He's been running a class called Political Science 179. He's been teaching for over did 40 years. Did you study years. with Ralph's sister? Uh, I'm not sure if I said with uh, if he said with Ralph's sister. He said he said at Berkeley. No, Ralph's sister teaches at Berkeley. Oh, what's her name? Laura Nader. Uh, what department? I anthro- I think it's anthropology. She teaches uh, systems of control over oh. indi- society places on individuals. Oh, interesting. But go, go ahead. Go ahead. Thank you. I, I mainly took classes from the business department because I completed the educational requirements to be a CPA. I'm working on 
uh, I have my last of the four exams for that. And I took uh, classes from the sociology department as a major there and then minors in journalism and education. But no, I didn't have the pleasure to take um, Ralph's sister as, as, a, as a professor. But however, there was a professor I loved dearly. He taught me legal aspects of management and as well as um, another course called uh, the Social, Political, and Ethical Environment of Business. And Legal Aspect of Management covered 10 chapters of contracts law. However, in the social, his name is Alan Ross. He also teaches a political science class called Policy 179. And he's had many big names come in over the past 40 years he's been teaching the class. He has 700 to 800 students a semester in the fall and the springs, each fall, each spring, including Gavin Newsom, I think eight plus eight times, Kamala Harris, Danny Glover, Paul Krugman, and even Cesar Chavez. And so one thing that's really interesting is one time in the social, political, and ethical environment class, it really reminded me of Ralph Nader when I heard the story, is about the Ford Pinto. He was teaching us the Mother Jones story about the Ford Pinto. I'm not sure how familiar either of you are with the story. Yes. Uh, let me... Please uh, do, David. Uh, I, I, give I, I used to do a joke about the Ford Pinto. They name a car after a bean, and then they wonder why the rear end explodes. <laughs> One of the best jokes. That's how I knew I was getting older when that joke stopped getting laughs in my act. And I realized nobody remembers the, the Pinto. Yeah, that, that's very you, you would touch the rear end and it, it would explode. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I don't know, would you want to detail a little bit about that background? I've taken up a good amount in this introduction. Spee, I would love to. Well, hear I'll tell you an interesting story about Ralph Nader. When he was, uh, his father and mother came to us, to America, from Lebanon, and they went back to Lebanon to visit, and Ralph and his family were presented before one of the top religious leaders of Lebanon, and he must have been five years old. It's a very famous story. And uh, the family went before this great religious leader and you were supposed to kiss his ring. And at the, I'm getting chills as I tell this story about Ralph. And uh, Ralph, all his, all his older brothers and sisters, you know, kissed the ring. And Ralph looked at this, one of the most powerful religious leaders in Lebanon. He looked up at him and said, I'm from America. I don't have to kiss anybody's ring. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> He is the greatest, I'm, I'm telling you, he is the greatest American since Ben Franklin. And the, anybody who says he's responsible for the Iraq war, you know, I want to say this politely, is just ignorant. Tom Daschle, Tom Daschle is a Democrat. He was the Senate majority leader when we gave the war authorization to George W. Bush to invade Iraq. They, this is what people, this is why people are just stupid. Uh, George W. Bush was president, but in 2002, the Democrats controlled the Senate. Tom Daschle was Senate Majority Leader. And our current National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was staff director of the Senate Foreign, Foreign Affairs Committee, and he supported the war as a Democrat. And Tom Daschle and the Democrats gave the war authorization to George W. Bush. It had nothing, the war in Iraq had nothing to do 
with the 2000 election. Ralph was running against both parties because they're both corrupt. And they proved that they're both corrupt in the run up to the war in Iraq when the Democrats authorized the invasion. They had an opportunity to stop the invasion of Iraq and they wouldn't do it. So anybody who claims Ralph Nader is responsible for Iraq and not the Democrats is is ignorant. The, yeah, the Democrats have their hands super bloody, and Nancy Pelosi never impeached George Bush like um, I think it was Dennis Kucinich said should have happened. And for, But one thing I'll push back on, though, is I, 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 Benjamin Franklin owned slaves, so I don't know how much of a great American I could be. I don't think Ben Franklin owned slaves. I'm not ben sure Franklin about that. I thought, I thought he did own slaves. I don't, I don't think he would have. I, 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 mean, he man, I Googled it before I said it just now. That's why I thought I think he engaged in bondage, but I don't think he... He was from Philadelphia. I think, I think he owned slaves. Yeah, no, I think he owned slaves. Okay, okay. So so uh, it seems like as a young man, he owned two slaves, yeah. although he did become an abolitionist later in life. Yeah, well, okay. Thomas Paine never owned slaves. So I, I put him as a better figure in U.S. history than Ben Franklin. Yeah, for, for, I, I actually, for a variety of reasons, I'm with you on that, Kusha. But uh, I would say on the Iraq war issue that... Um, like, it is true that Al Gore uh, criticized the war in Iraq uh, by the time that happened, although I would point out that this is two years after he had stopped trying to hold elected office and was and had, like, rebranded himself as, a, as like, a liberal environmental crusader as this, like, main thing now again. Uh, and... Uh, so I think his incentives were very different, you know, than all of the big Democrats who supported the war at the time. And I and I think that if you look at his his record as as vice president to the Clinton administration, when Clinton uh, imposed really brutal sanctions on Iraq, or at least kept them up for eight years, that you know by some estimates killed something like half a million Iraqi children. Uh, his Secretary of State Madeleine Albright famously said that it was worth it. Uh, and was was bombing Iraq all the time, was making claims, by the way, about weapons of mass destruction. Everybody's forgotten about this. Uh, that Al Gore, you know, if, if he ever had a problem with any of that when he was vice president of the Clinton administration, it was a closely guarded secret. And I also point out that the guy he picked as his running mate in 2000 was Joe Lieberman, you know, who's not famously anti-war. So, um, you know, and that, that would have been the guy in the Cheney seat, you know, in 2002. So maybe that wouldn't have happened. It's possible. Uh, I, I think it's 100% for sure that that, like, disastrous, long, bloody invasion and occupation of Afghanistan would have happened with Al Gore as president. But I think that even Iraq, I think to be confident that it wouldn't have happened if, if, he, if he was elected, I don't understand where that confidence comes from. Yeah, I have to, I have to jump in here because it, it presupposes that Ralph Nader lost the election for Al Gore. Right. The, you know, Al Gore is just an absolute. He is just the worst. I worked for him over at Current TV, and he ended up selling Current TV for half a billion dollars to Cutter for Al Jazeera, which happens to be one of the greatest news gathering operations in the world. However, it is petrodollars, 
And Mr. Environmentalist took half a billion dollars in petrodollars and shut down current TV. And he's a major stockholder in Apple. He, uh, he's, it's, he's, uh, I don't know if he's still on the board of directors of Apple, but this guy has always tried to merge doing good things with getting filthy rich. But the most important thing about Al Gore is he underestimated George W. Bush, and he thought he was smarter than James Baker in 2000, and he thought he could trick them into saying, you know what, I only want to recount in these in Miami-Dade. I only, he, he only demanded a recount in the counties where he did well, which was dishonest on his part, because had he asked for a statewide recount, which would have been the right thing to do, he would have won. Uh, a news consortium run by the Miami Herald got their hands on all the ballots, and they recounted all of Florida, and they concluded that Al Gore won, even with the hanging chads, even with just among the, the votes that the Republicans would have accepted. If Had you done a statewide recount, Al Gore would have won. Uh, that study came out in December of 2001, and by then nobody cared <laughs> about Al Gore. They, yeah. The World Trade Center had come down. But had Al Gore not been too smart by half and said, let's, let's do the right thing, let's recount the, the entire state, he would have yeah. won. But instead he just asked, you know, wherever there's a butterfly ballot, Let's ask for a recount there. We've got these Harvard boys who are going to outsmart Texas. Well, they didn't realize what they were up against. Al Gore is a piece of shit, and so was Clinton. Yeah, I would also, uh, for sure on that, uh, I would, uh, of course, for obvious reasons, uh, last year I reread uh, Christopher Hitchens' book about Clinton, No One Left to Lie To, which I would recommend everybody check out. But um, I, I guess I would... I would just add two things. One of them is that even, um, I mean, even before we start thinking about recounts and all that stuff, the main stealing was uh, the absurd number of people who were illegally purged from the voter rolls in advance of the election. Right. And and that if you say that, um, if you say Ralph, it's you know, if you say it's Ralph Nader's fault that George Bush won, then you're, you know, you're presupposing that George Bush won, uh, and. Uh, and the other one is that it's it's very strange for people to say that, like, what's the argument here? That Ralph Nader shouldn't have run for president in 2000, which, you know, I still think, look, it's not a gamble that paid off. And, you know, my thoughts about electoral strategy are very different now. But, you know, the gamble was that this is a way to, you know, jumpstart a meaningful third party in the United States that, you know, but that he shouldn't have tried that because of the danger that something like the Iraq war would happen. And I think if you actually remember the 2000 election, um, nobody was, you know, was saying that Bush was going to do things like invade Iraq, right? This was not part of the election. He said, but, I'm not into nation building. He specifically he, said no nation building. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like not, not only were liberals not accusing Bush, like no liberal in 2000 was accusing Bush of being like a neoconservative warmonger, who was going to invade Middle Eastern nations. In fact, the accusation was exactly the opposite. Like liberal Clinton-Gore people in 2000 
uh, were accusing Bush of being an isolationist. Yeah. Well, the Republicans traditionally were isolationists, which was a dog whistle for pro-Nazi. They called themselves isolationists, but they were really on the side of Adolf Hitler. There's a, that, that's the Republicans. He's from that branch of the Republican Party. That uh, Yeah, well, liter- literally, right, because his... Uh, uh, Harriman brothers, Prescott. Yeah, Prescott. Prescott. Was busted for for doing business with the Germans, right? Is that right. about yeah. yeah, yep, yeah. Sort of. I mean, that's the thing about war, is I, you have to before. By the way, no fly zones don't work, uh, and they didn't work in Iraq. That's the first thing. Whenever we're about to go to war, you should always look ten years before the war. Before they ask you to go to war, go ten years back in history and figure out what we could have done to prevent the war. Uh, war is never, ever necessary, including World War II. If you go back to 1931, ask what America could have done. Ask what England could have done to prevent Hitler's rise to power. The problem was greed, and there were a lot of people, including uh, the king who abdicated, who loved Adolf Hitler. There were a lot of people in, in Great Britain who loved Adolf Hitler because he, they're, they're a banking nation, Great Britain, that's the birthplace of capitalism, sort of, and they hated Stalin and Russia. They loved Hitler. Well, I think David raises a very important point about us looking in the era just before World War II and asking what could have been done. I think when it comes to Roosevelt and his lack of any support during the Spanish Civil War. Now, one may say to me, like, governments should not necessarily be intervening in other people's affairs, but I think the Spanish Civil War was a huge turning point in the rise of Nazi Germany and Mussolini's fascist Italy, especially because they were able to make Francisco Franco and Spain successful. Interestingly, I know that uh, Ben has written his book about Chris Hittins, and Chris Hittins is very fascinated by George Orwell, and George Orwell served in that Spanish Civil War, and I think he wrote uh, about his experiences in a book like Homage to Catalonia. Yep, that's it. Homage to Catalonia. Homage to Catalonia. And now that's not to say George Orwell was a perfect person by any means. I know he was in Myanmar or formerly known as Burma as a British police officer. And he also named some names, I think, to the British authorities about some uh, communist media of the Stalinist. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah. I, I mean, I will say, I mean, the first part's unambiguously true. I mean, he was a colonial, you know, policeman and, uh, in Burma, although I think he he drew you know anti-colonial conclusions from his experiences, but yeah, uh, but I, I would say uh, the naming names is a little bit murkier. Oh, I, tell me, okay, know. okay. So you can look at actually there is like Hitchens and Alex uh, Coburn had like some back and forth about this around the time the Hitchens uh, Orwell book came out, and basically what it comes down to is that. Uh, what we're talking about when we talk about that is that there was some British, like it's probably like the British equivalent of like the National Endowment for Democracy or one of these like, and you he know. he was dying, right? Wasn't he sick yeah, yeah. dying? Yeah, yeah. He was like on his deathbed when all this happened, right? And he, oh. and, there was, and there was some like, um, and there was some, it was like, it was like the British equivalent of like one of those like Congress for Cultural Freedom or something like that. Like one of those sorts of like, 
State Department, CIA, like kind of like promoting cultural things, uh, things that we had in the United States. And there was somebody who was involved in this, who was friendly with him, who was who was asking basically for advice about you know who to contact to like writers to to try to get on board with this Congress for Cultural Freedom esque thing that they were doing that they were sponsoring. And uh, and he and, and basically he gave names some names of people to like not asked to do this because they were like fellow travelers. And so I think there's, I think there's room to criticize. I think there's like a legitimate criticism of Orwell lurking in there, which is that by that point he had like, you know, he, you know, he didn't have the sort of um, like principled internationalist opposition to both sides of the cold war that he should have. I mean, he definitely drifted into Turn on, didn't he turn on Stalin and communism in the later part of his life? Was it Animal Farm? Uh, yeah. yeah, Animal Farm was definitely condemning Stalinism, if I'm not mistaken. That was published at the peak of Stalin's worldwide influence in 1945 when Stalin was still Uncle Joe. Roosevelt made that movie, Mission to Moscow. He commissioned it, and uh, Stalin was condemned in 45 by that book. And publishers were saying, why are you doing this right now? Stalin just defeated the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was actually the experience in Spain of the Civil War that turned him against uh, Stalinism. Okay, even before. Yeah, so that was like that was like thirty. That was like yeah, the late thirties that he had. Uh, so if you if you read homage to Catalonia, like that's like a very anti-Stalinist book because of the the role of of uh, of, of Stalin and the common turn and, and basically selling out the revolution in Spain. And, um, and so he, he'd already had that, you know, that perspective that really, you know, so he says he has this famous essay, I think in the fifties, although maybe late forties, I think fifties called why I write, where he says that every serious word that I've written since 1936 has been written, uh, against totalitarianism and for democratic socialism, as I understand it. And, uh, which is a really funny thing, by the way, cause like, if you read, like, it's like the Signet edition of Animal Farm, I think, that's like super, like, widely sold, like, millions of copies, uh, posthumous edition of Animal Farm. The introduction quotes that, but it leaves out the end for democratic socialism. <laughs> it just says against totalitarianism. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, yeah, he had been very anti Stalinist since then, uh, which obviously I think is, you know, correct. But, like, that he, uh, but I think. But I think where there is room for criticism for like what people are talking about when they talk about naming names is that by the time this had happened, right, even though like, look, he was I mean, he never became anything like a right winger. I mean, he was a he was a strong supporter of the Clement Attlee government that was doing things like nationalizing the coal mines and creating the NHS. I mean, when he published 1984, he was right a strong, you know, strong supporter of the left wing of the Labour Party. But I think that as the Cold War really got going, I think he was so afraid of Stalinism that he probably that he he did drift into just sort of supporting the American and British side of the Cold War. And so I think the fact that he would have anything to do with these Congress for Cultural Freedom type people in the first place, I think that it's totally legitimate to criticize that. But I think that when people say he named names, I think that's really misleading because that makes it sound like he's naming names to McCarthy or something and like and these lives, people's lives are being ruined and all that. Whereas literally he's just saying like, no, you shouldn't approach these people to like work for you because, you know, because they wouldn't be on board ideologically. Thank you. Question so about the, let me ask yeah. you about the Lincoln brigade. Cause mm. when I was growing up, the Lincoln brigade, these were like Hemingway, all these 
guys, these macho men who were borderline socialists, who left Paris to go fight in Spain. They were heroes, the Lincoln Brigade. And now I'm looking at these right-wing douchebags going over to Ukraine. What do you think of all these militia members who want to take on the the Ruskies in Ukraine. Do you think that should be legal for Americans to go over there and come back? I don't Uh, like going over there. I'm just worried about their coming back. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I I guess one thing to me to think about there is if you did pass laws to stop that. And look, I mean, my gut feeling is that people who are doing that are probably our reactionary idiots who, like, know absolutely nothing about Ukraine that like it's it's they've probably had like about two weeks of seeing people making uh, Harry Potter and World War II analogies on Twitter and they're just going over there based on that but um, my concern is that if you pass laws to outlaw that then you know that would I think there are cases where I mean I think like you know the Lincoln Brigade that was a good thing you know that uh, or like even even I think a modern equivalent that I would defend would be people who went over to uh, fight with the YPG to uh, defend that, um, you know, Rojava uh, against, um, you know, against ISIS, that kind of radical socialist Kurdish experiment, Rojava. So, so I'd be, I'd, I'd, I'd be a little wary about the cost benefit of outlawing that. So you, you're okay with Americans going overseas and joining the foreign legion and fighting? That can't be good. I mean, it might not. It might or might not be a good thing to do. But I think that the whether or not it's a good thing to do, I'd be hesitant about the. Um, I'd be hesitant about the, uh, the the costs of outlawing it entirely. Right? Like, I'm glad that nobody arrested uh, all of the uh, all of the Americans who who went over to fight fascism in Spain when they got back to the United States. But isn't that a recipe for the CIA? to become agent provocateurs, to insinuate themselves into these militia and create false flag operations. No, it wasn't the American government. It was a militia member who did this. I don't know. I I mean, mean, you don't think the CIA could find people who, like, like, you know, aren't Americans to to do that stuff? I mean, it seems like it seems like that the, you know, we have a long history of of just like, you know, of finding, uh, you know, just local thugs wherever in the world we want to do operations. Well, it's, I don't know. If if we have to start getting rid of people, I, I just think you have to draw a line and say, you don't go fighting. You, you don't become an enemy combatant overseas. You're an American. You stay here. Unless you're working for Blackwater or something. uh, (laughs) We can have the Blackwater carve-out. The the Blackwater carve-out, yes. Those are definitely the Americans fighting overseas. We want to protect when we have this law. Uh, Awesome. I think think David asked some really important questions there about the role of individuals serving as paramilitary actors internationally. And I think... One thing that it reminded me of when he asked about the Lincoln Brigade, which is actually a point I even wanted to maybe have raised, and I'm glad David raised it, is that I don't know if you saw it or not, but in 2016, John McCain himself, a war criminal involved in the Vietnam War, which should have never taken place, and of course the U.S. financed 80% of France's intervention from 1946 to 54 after World War II, but he wrote a column in the New York Times, March 24, 2016, salute to a communist, 
about the Lincoln Brigade, and he was supporting the Lincoln Brigade, um, which is one important element of it. And what I'll conclude on, and I'd love to hear Scott, uh, the next um, interested caller, is that, in fact, I just told that line to Matt Taibbi earlier today, Ben, about George Orwell's um, Why I Write, about yeah. uh, totalitarianism and for democratic socialism. I think it might have been the first time Matt had heard that. So, yes, thank you for also mentioning it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the call, uh, Kusha. Uh, this is uh, this is great. I want to uh, I want to get uh, Scott uh, in uh, before we uh, before we go. Are you with us, Scott? I think so. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, I I joined late. I was only here once. Kusha had asked his question, but I'm, I'm going to have to go back because it's been a, a very interesting conversation. Um, and I had a lot of questions come up as you guys were talking. Um, and yeah, just thinking about, about the Lincoln Brigade and other, uh, you know, like George Orwell went over to, to fight in the Civil War. Um, and speaking of the uh, Americans going into Ukraine, it, there was a Reddit post, obviously, it's, it's questionable how much the the accuracy of it can be, but it was in the, uh, I think, Volunteers for Ukraine subreddit, which is where all those guys are going to join, join the fight. Are you typing, sir? I, I am not, no. Oh, okay. I think that may be, yeah. So, one of, there was a post there that, that went kind of viral about uh, it was a person saying they were uh, they had gone to Ukraine, they were posting from Ukraine, they were an American, um, and that they had that they were there when uh, there was some shelling like 15 miles from the border of Poland. Uh, I'm not sure of the exact, exact but he talked about how all the volunteers were kind of shocked and were Yeah, there's a military to... base 15 miles off the border so, of Poland, and that's where NATO is secretly training Ukrainian soldiers. And they got caught. So uh, military advisors got caught uh, in, in that uh, missile strike. There were about 30. They fired about 30 missiles. And they claim they the Russians claim they killed about 150. Ukraine says they killed about 30. Yeah, I yeah. So I'm not I'm not familiar with it beyond this Reddit Reddit post. But it was talking about how this guy joined up thinking he was going to they that they were joining up for target rich environment or something, and that but that they were suddenly getting shelled. Reality set in the fact that. Yeah. potentially be ordered and that now a huge number of them are, are quitting and trying to get back to America. And so I just wanted to bring that up as kind of reality check. A lot of them are being encouraged. I've read that a lot of right-wing militia who identify with Putin because he's a right-wing authoritarian who is the standard bearer of the white race, but a lot of white militia who in America who root for Putin have been told to go fight 
on the side of Ukraine to pick up skills that they can use back here in America for the coming race war? I mean, I think that, okay, I'm not not familiar with with some of the details. of. of I I just made that shit up, but, you know, it sounds good, doesn't it? It was was actually, I think. That was plausible. Yeah, no, I read that's that's I read that in a mainstream. Okay, okay, okay. It's okay. all its information from Clapper and Hayden and <laughs> all the NSA, so it's got to be reliable. There you go, there you go. Well, I can't speak to whether that's reliable or not, but I, I do, I do think that there has been an interesting dynamic here. Like I, I will say that different right-wingers have ended up on different ends of it. Like, I think if you compare, for example, some of the things that Tucker Carlson has said to what, like, 98% of the rest of Fox News is like, that, like, every time I ever tune into a few minutes of Fox, which I, you know, I'll do that, like, I'm serious in the car because I hate myself, uh, that, um, you know, 99% of Fox's coverage of the war in Ukraine is, like, Biden is a pussy for not starting World War Three. But uh, but uh, I do think that a lot of right-wingers, I think, maybe had sort of initially torn impulses about this because it's, it's like that meme with the guy uh, who's sweating while he's deciding between pushing the two buttons. You know, like, one of them is, like, since they're all, you know, they're all, like, warmongering ultra-patriots, so, like, one of them is, like, you know, war, we love war, kill all the Russians, you know, start a no-fly zone. Uh, and then the other button is, you know, we kind of like Putin because he's clearly a you know conservative Christian nationalist traditionalist just like us. It's it's to me. Uh, I'm losing. There's not an argument here, but I'm going to bring up Hitler with the Republicans. Always a good move. I can't. I I, I lost. I'm, we're not arguing, but I I brought up Hitler, so I lose. <laughs> but God wins. The, the Republicans wanted to fight Russia. They they wanted to fight Stalin, they and then Hitler declared war on the United States. They liked what Hitler was doing. They agreed about him with him about you know racial purity and stuff like that. But you know what do you do when the guy you love declares war on you, which he did? So they they reluctantly had to get in line. But you know. After we defeated uh, German, well, after the Russians really defeated Hitler, uh, these people got their act together, the isolationists, and then they wanted to go fight Stalin, who they always wanted to fight. They got their war with Stalin, you know, in, in the 50s. Yeah, and then, uh, and then almost... Uh almost literally a war with, uh, with Khrushchev and, uh, at the beginning of the sixties, uh, which is, has been, um, obviously an example that has been on my mind a lot in, uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, and particularly, I mean, a few days ago, you know, Biden, I mean, look, I, I, I am obviously not a fan, but I actually suspect that we could have a whole lot worse than grandpa Biden as president right now. Since, um, you know, for, I think Bernie would have been better. He would have tried way harder to have a negotiated solution to stop it from escalating to this point in the first place, which is what he advocated in his op-ed in The Guardian. But, um, 
But given that things have gotten to this point, we probably could do a whole hell of a lot worse than Biden because Biden, at least, you know, as much as he is the ultimate corporate Democrat in many ways, as much as he has spent his life voting for wars, he does have a demonstrated capacity to make some calculations about at least imperial self-interest and then stick to them. Uh, so, you know, I mean, he, he stuck with the withdrawal in Afghanistan when the media was crucified him for it. And uh, and I think now I, I, you know, suspect and hope that he's going to stick with uh, he's going to stick with this. I mean, although I saw like a few days ago, Biden had tweeted basically, uh, sorry, guys, I'm not going to start World War Three. And just the parade of replies, many of them from like blue check media people with, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers um, saying, oh, my God, why not? You know, this is so weak. You know, really? <laughs> yeah. Are there really people saying that? I can't yes. believe it. Yes. Yeah. No, they're, they're right. Really, that was okay. No, there, there, there absolutely are uh, lots of people. Uh, there are lots of people saying this uh, that uh, that that Biden should be should be starting a no fly zone. That if he just announces that he's not going to, you know, send get directly militarily involved in the Ukraine, that this is unacceptable. This is this is appeasement, like uh, like Chamberlain at Munich. That uh, these, you know, that he's settings this horrible precedent that we're not gonna we're not gonna fight for other countries and blah 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 and like throughout it all all i can think about is that jfk speech during the cuban missile crisis where he said that you know basically that you can't win a war like this yeah wasn't chamberlain just trying to i'm not going to defend chamberlain and lord halifax but weren't they didn't he know that they were ill-equipped to take on the German war machine, that appeasement was the only choice they had? Wasn't he trying to buy time? I, I think there's definitely a historical case that you can make for that. Like if you read Robert Harris, uh, you know, wrote a, a historical novel called Munich uh, about the peace conference. That's where I'm getting it from. Yeah, and he has, and, I've, and I know I've read like interviews and stuff with, you know, with, with Harris for, you know, like, yeah, there, I think there's definitely a case to be made. I mean, that, that Hitler wanted a war in 1938, and, you know, he was kind of diplomatically outflanked. And if he got in it, he would have had a way better chance of winning than, you know, than, than he did, you know, given that they started later, you know, when the, the British had more time to build up. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a pretty brutal calculation in terms of Czechoslovakia, but even so, right? I mean, I think that there, I think it is entirely possible that it was a very good thing for the world that that happened then. Well, actually, Chamberlain was, was going to be part of my next question. <laughs> uh, David, I'm he's, not as familiar with your with, work. Do you believe he slept with 15,000 <laughs> I don't. Uh, I'm not familiar as familiar as I'd like to be with your work, David, um, but you did mention you know, um, World War II and I am on board with all war is evil, all war is illegitimate, all war is preventable. Um, but it seems like there are instances like Chamberlain, and I'm I'm not familiar with what you guys were talking about. Uh, but there are are instances where people try to avoid war, but it comes um, unavoidable. At least, you know, the older I get, the more I believe David Swanson the author of the book, War is a Lie, which I recommend. Because when I was younger and I had fire going through my veins, I always 
you know, let's say war should be the, you know, you, that's the, your last, only the last choice. But there was always a, I was in the back of my mind, I always said, you know, we should, so, sometimes you do need to go to war. The older I get, the more I have come to learn that David Swanson is correct and war is always a failure. War is always a lie. War can always be prevented. The problem is there are people who want war either because of a psychological defect or profits. And we can't imagine that level or both. of... Yeah, and we can't measure... We don't imagine that level of depravity. We can't imagine that there are actually people who would be willing to sacrifice hundreds of thousands of their own people for profit or to get even with their father for leaving them when they were two years old. But, you know, everybody watches these uh, true crime documentaries on television. They, they can see the, the, the depravity in individuals, but they just cannot see it in world leaders. It's, it just stops with the neighbor next door. You can imagine the neighbor next door carving up women, but you can't imagine that uh, in our world leaders. That's why they are world leaders, because they, they get off on carving up humans. They just mask it. Look at Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor. And I try not Anthony, to. Anthony Blinken. These guys, you know, they're willing to live with a little death. What they'll say to themselves is, if, you know, we can save a million lives by only killing 100,000. It's just a chess game to them. Yeah, like... All, uh, war, all war is failure. Like uh, like Robert McNamara, uh, even even later in life, um, you know, when, when he had granted that, you know, Vietnam was wrong, uh, sort of making this weird suggestion that uh, because of the, uh, the improved safety standards that... Uh, uh, that he was responsible for uh, when it, his previous uh, his previous work for the auto companies that you know it sort of balanced out. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's it's the same. That's how the auto companies work. What did he he worked for American Motors? I think so. Yeah, yeah, they they have bean counters and they they do a cost benefit analysis and they say this spring is defective. Uh, if it's five people will die from it which means we'll pay out $20 million in damages, or we can retool all the assembly lines around the world, and that will cost us $40 million. Let's keep the spring in there, have five people die, and pay $20 million. That's how it works. That's literally what people do for a living at GM. Yeah. They do cost-benefit analysis, and they decide that it's cheaper to have a couple of people die than fix the problem. But you can't yeah, imagine that. You can't imagine yourself doing that for a living. But I'm surrounded by corporate lawyers who work for Exxon. I'm in Manhattan, and I am surrounded with stockbrokers 
and 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 corporate lawyers, these pieces of shit, who go to work each day, and they look like respectable members of society, and they're murderers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say, I guess, um, you know, looping back to to World War II, that I mean, I think it's. I mean, I understand what you're saying when you say that all war is a failure, that um, that clearly there are lots of things that could and should have been done uh, long in advance to stop Germany from getting to the point, you know, where where somebody like Hitler could come to power in the first place. Uh, and I'm, I'm certainly on board with all of that. I mean, I, I think that it's I think that it's fair enough to say that once you got to 1939, 1941, it's a good thing on balance, you know, that uh, that the Allies won the war. I think that's true. I think that the, but I also think it's a terrible template for understanding everything that's happened since then, because, um, you know, the idea that the stakes of the United States not entering some war are ever normally equivalent to a fascist dictatorship, like taking over the planet in the, uh, in the way that was the, the sort of, risk in world war two is just totally unhinged from reality it's like it's, it's one it's a it's one thing to say that um that under some like the most extreme possible circumstance you can continent supporting things that you would never support under any normal circumstances uh and you know okay maybe right i mean i, I could i could see that but also 99.9% of the time, you know, we aren't living in the most extreme possible circumstances and, and it's, and, and sort of constantly comparing everything to that. Right. I mean, I remember, um, like, uh, Christopher Hitchens right wing isolationist brother, Peter, uh, told me, or I, I don't remember if this is something he told me, or this is something he says in his book, but, uh, I think it's something he says in his book, but he says, that in retrospect, the, you know, even though they went to church sometimes, the religion uh, he and Christopher were raised in wasn't really Christianity. It was uh, we won the war. And I think right. that that's, I, you know, and, and I think that's not just true of, of Britain. I mean, that sort of World War II mythology is, is used, has been used since 1945 to, to justify everything. And it's almost always a terrible analogy. I mean, you look, obviously, Hitler had a go. Uh, you know, there's no question. My father fought in World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, this is, if there was a good war, that was the good war and the Civil War, um, which we should have finished. Sherman should have been allowed. I mean, I have a whole theory about that that I don't want to get into, but sure. Yeah, well, as, a, as, a, uh, as a resident of Atlanta, I'm actually with you on well, I mean, you know, you rebuild, if you're going to win a war, you rebuild, uh, you rebuild in your own image. That's why Germany and Japan are such great, like we're now we're in the shadow of their democracy. They're, they're, they have a social safety net. We rebuilt Germany and Japan in our own image. The problem is we let, we didn't let Sherman keep going. It should have been total, total war against the South. And we could have rebuilt the South in our own image. And that would be blue. That would be the blue, the bluest of the blue, like Japan and Germany. And uh, when you look at 
the plantations and uh, the slave trade, uh, they were worthy of, I'm being partly sarcastic here and partly not, uh, but uh, what I was going to yeah. say, what, what I was going to say about uh, World yeah. War II is the price we pay for World War II was, okay, we, we bailed out England, France, Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Not sure Belgium deserved to be bailed out when you look at what they did to the Congo, but that's a whole other story. Or Britain, but Hitler was bad. And then what did that do to America? We became the protector of the world against communism. And the price we pay for that is we lose our democracy. That we, we have an imperial president who can pretty much send troops anywhere he wants around the world for 60 days without congressional approval. We become a national security state. We have to spend a trillion dollars a year on defense. And we are not a democracy because of that. Because if we voted on spending a trillion dollars a year on defense, if we voted on these wars, the American people would say no. So they've taken our democracy away from us because we've become the world's, because of imperialism. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I actually think this is a really, uh, that last part is really worth circling and underlining because I noticed that there's this weird thing that happens, and I do it too, but that the aspect of American government that Americans are most likely to refer to using um, like first-person collective pronouns, you know, us, we, you know, we did this, we did that, uh, is, is foreign policy that, you know, we'll say, oh, you know, well, we did invade Iraq, you know, we, you know, uh, you know, we, uh, we overthrew Allende, whatever. And that's actually kind of perverse because it's the single aspect of government that uh, we actually have the least input in. That's right. You know, that uh, the biggest anti-war movement was 2003 it was bigger than the 60s. The lead yeah. up to the war. Bigger yeah, than... it didn't stop it. No, it did. It didn't stop it. Right. And that's the point of it that we that like that. And either did the 60s. The right. 60s didn't stop it either. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a case that maybe, you know, the uh, what happened in the 60s stopped it from um, uh, from from escalating past a certain point uh, that there's like, what does Noam Chomsky always point out, that there's something in the Pentagon Papers where, um, like, I think LBJ, I think this would still be LBJ, I think this was 68, but anyway, had a uh, one and two, uh, wanted to send like 100,000 more troops or something, and... Uh, and one of the generals said that wouldn't leave enough to, you know, to guarantee social stability uh, within the United States. Uh, and, you know, and, and I guess, you know, there's a, there's a case that uh, that maybe in the long run it helped end it earlier. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, like certainly given the intensity of the number of years of that and how just the fact the war kept dragging on and on or the fact that we did have these like the biggest anti-war protests of all time. In 2002, 2003, I mean, February 15th, 2003, I mean, I 
you know, was part of it in a small way. I helped organize one in Lansing, Michigan that had like 4,000 people. It was the largest demonstration at the state capitol, I think, ever. And, um, and that was that was Lansing, Michigan, right? I mean, that was happening all over the place. And, and of course, it still, it still happened anyway. I mean, most, most Americans don't even know. Uh, like, like, could it give the list of countries where the United States is engaged in, in some level of, of military operations? I mean, it would make way more sense to refer to almost any other aspect of American government by talking about what we're doing than talking about the national security state because the national security state has been specifically designed, like Danny Bester talks about in his book Democracy in Exile, uh, to to freeze out the possibility of public participation, to to even freeze out Congress to, you know, to for the most part, you know, because that's that's too close to being influenced, you know, by uh by popular opinion. So um Thank you so much, Scott, for uh, for the call. Robert Caro's book. I, I, one thing that I'm going to, yeah, Bob Caro, you had talked about it on my yep. show. Yep. His, I would assume, his last chapter is sixty four to sixty eight. Uh, how do you how do you explain Lyndon Johnson uh-huh. getting suckered into Vietnam? I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't yeah. Know. I mean, there's that tape of him talking to Everett Dirksen. Uh-huh. I think it was like 65, 66. Dirksen, a Republican. And he says, yeah, I don't know what's going on here. They just keep telling me to put more troops in, more troops. There's no way we can win this. How do you, how do you have a president who could stand up to everybody uh-huh. but not his own military? Yeah, I mean that's a, I mean that's a good question. I mean that might speak to what we were talking about about the undemocratic nature of the national security state, which I remember. I mean, look, this is even. Um, I mean, speaking of Iraq, right? I mean, in two thousand and four, the the big mainstream liberal critique of George W. Bush was that he wasn't listening to his generals enough about how many troops they would need to really get the job done. Yeah, uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I I mean, I think so. That's definitely part of it. But I also think that part of it might just, you know, might just be that, I mean, as, as much as this sounds kind of silly, because I'm like psychologizing this long dead person, but, uh, and how would I know and whatever, but like, my sense from reading about him is that I think LBJ was also just tremendously worried about looking weak and, and like, that was even like, even his input on the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, he was in the we should bomb the airfields to show that we really need business crowd. Uh, so, so I think, which by the way, I mean, I think it's probably also, again, I know it's a dangerous game because it's like, not like we know any of these people, you know, they're, they're just public figures, but um, I have to think is also some aspect of, of why Putin did this insane escalation of actually invading uh, the, the whole country, right. You know, from, um, you know, like after the eight years of just, you know, waging kind of a proxy war in Ukraine, that like, why would he do this? It's so crazy. It undermines Russian interests so much. NATO is going to expand more because of it. Uh, but I mean, I, I think probably some of that same LBJ syndrome that, you know, that he thinks that he, that, you know, that he wants to show people that he's, you know, strong and powerful. He means business and can't be messed with. Uh, look at Syria. I'm not so sure Putin is going to make the same mistake 
uh, the Soviet Union made in Afghanistan. Uh, if you look at what, what Putin and Assad did in Syria, I think, and I noticed that Putin is going to be getting either 1,500 or 15,000 soldiers from Syria. He learned from Assad uh, how to win. Assad is still in power. Uh, this, I don't think this is Afghanistan. I think Putin does not want NATO nipping mm-hmm. at his heels, and he's sending a clear message. You court any more former republics, Soviet republics, this is what happens. Yeah, I'm not saying I think that this is not good. I don't I hope I'm 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 always wrong and I hope I'm wrong again. But I I I think Putin uh, can sleep very well at night bringing Syria to Ukraine. Well, that is a grim thought. Uh, You have time to take one more call before we go. I wanted to end on a positive note. I thought that would be a good way to end. Uh, wow. All right. Uh, Mark, what's on your mind? Mark, do you see the uh, unmute button? I think he's trying to mute me. All right. Well, uh, perhaps this is not working. Uh, so um, anything uh, anything of interest coming up on, uh, on, your, uh, on your show this week? We have... Well, we don't have you on Thursday. You're abandoning me. But we have Lee Camp from Oh RT yeah, RT. He, yep. he, yeah, he's on the current episode of my show, and you can watch it on YouTube or download it as a podcast. And we talk. I, I actually asked him some tough questions about yeah. RT America and whether or not it's a soft power propaganda arm for Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm glad right. I think those are definitely questions that are uh, that are that are worth asking uh and, and you should give that a free pass, but I also think it's I also think from a free speech perspective it's it's pretty disturbing to me that yeah. a couple a couple of big corporations under transparent political pressure just kind of rolled over and crushed an entire network overnight and uh I know, it's disgraceful. <laughs> It is absolutely disgraceful. It's the most. It was the most honest news gathering operation, especially when it came to the invasion, because you knew what the bias is. It wasn't corporate bias. It was Russian bias, and I can read that. I can. I can. You know. I go to their website. I can read uh, a, a a news organization that's cherry picking information that makes the case for Russia. Because uh, I know where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah. it has it, it has it right in the title. The, uh, that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's more than you can say for most, uh, for most news networks. Uh, yeah, get the... Uh... It, it's horrible. First of all, uh, Russian tell, RT America, you know, like Fox News, they, that you could, they sneak their message in. Uh, it's not... You know, they try to present themselves as fair and balanced and you can they're, you know, they're sneaking in a anti-American message uh, Uh. like Fox. And yet 
art, it's important to be able to to hear that and see that the problem isn't RT. The problem is mainstream corporate media in America that has dumbed us down, that we lack the critical thinking to be able to watch something like RT and not know that it's coming from a, a specific origin. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a big defender unironically of uh, of what what's often referred to as whataboutism, which is that uh, whenever we're talking about something that relates to uh, to one of these um, to the actions of one power, we should we should talk about actions to fill up the other and parallels to it. I think that's useful for any number of reasons, uh, and and one of them is that I, I mean I think that look if um, if there had been maybe before Putin consolidated his power too much. And, you know, I'm sure there are real equivalents to this. I don't know the details. But, you know, if there had been perhaps before Putin consolidated his power too much to allow it, an AT in Moscow, right, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, that you know, is, uh, you know, America TV, you know, Russia, uh, I, would, I would absolutely be opposed to shutting that down, right? Like not because I think that the um, – you know, that, that it would be free of bias or that it wouldn't like whatever, like clearly if the American government was sponsoring it, you know, that would be because they thought they would get something out of it. Uh, and, you know, and, and I, I don't like the American government, but I also think that like Russians should be able to, the Russians should be allowed to get news from wherever they want to get it. And I think the same principle should apply to, uh, to, to RT in the, uh, in the United States. Hey, it's the 50th anniversary of The Godfather today. Oh, that are I did you, not know. Are you a Godfather freak? Uh, yeah, I actually, I have watched, uh, I've watched the first one a million times. I'm a huge fan of that movie. I know I haven't seen the second one as, as often as you have. Yeah. You want to hit me with the trivia question? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, true or false? Uh, Don Corleone's first name was Donald. That's why they called him Don. True or false? I would assume false. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> I always thought Don Corleone. Like I figured, like if you knew him really well, you'd call him Donnie Corleone. You know? No, it was a sign uh, of respect. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. No, that was um, a, a million years ago. Uh, when I was a college undergraduate uh, and um, I had uh, I had a single dorm room for a while. And so I'd often like go to sleep watching a movie on VHS because that's the only way to do that at this point. Uh, and, um, and that was, that was one of the ones in the rotation was the first Godfather movie. So I've, I've seen that many, many times, but um, all right, well, we'll have to have a conversation about that another time and, and we can go through other, <laughs> other pieces of uh, Godfather trivia but meanwhile, uh, thank you, uh, thank you so much, David. Uh, everybody should uh, everybody should listen uh, to or watch on YouTube. We can do that now. Uh, the uh, the David Feldman show. Everybody should check out uh, the uh, the Ralph Nader uh, Radio Hour. And I will be back on the David Feldman show uh, next week to resume the tradition of David beating me in some sort of debate every week, which I feel uh, you've never won an argument with me. Never. Yeah. No, well, I wouldn't know what to do with it if I did. (laughs) All right. Thanks, David. This was fun. Thank you, everybody. This was great.